You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. We're making a transition tonight. If you think about the first five pieces of Christian armor that we've discussed, they are all for defensive purposes. But tonight we're going to transition from defensive armor to offensive weaponry. And we're going to look specifically at the second half of verse number 17. Now I know that it's been a couple of weeks since we've been on this, but uh, hopefully your mind is still on it and we'll refresh it a little bit. But I want you to see this tonight, and uh, we're going to talk about our sword for a little while this evening. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 17. Look what the Bible says. And take the helmet of salvation, and here's the verse for tonight, the second part, and the sword of the Spirit. Now you wonder, what is the sword of the Spirit? Well, the Bible defines it for us. By the way, when you study the Bible, the best tool for defining the Bible is the Bible. Amen. You use the Bible to explain the Bible. You say, well, I don't understand that. We'll keep on reading. Or go back and read before where you are now, and you'll, you'll find an explanation. But here's what it is. The sword of the Spirit, what is it? Here it is. Which is the Word of God. The Word of God, you say, well, that's the Christian sword. And it is, but it's the Spirit's sword. You invite the Holy Spirit to fight on your behalf when you utilize the Word of God. It's a spiritual book that the Spirit uses. For a little while this evening, I want to preach on this thought. Maybe you've heard the statement before. If you grew up around sports, you probably had a coach make the statement. I've heard it so many times. Defense wins championships. You ever heard that before? That's a good statement, I guess. They say defense wins championships. But I want us to think on this. Defense might win championships. But offense will win the war. We can't just afford to stay on defense all the time. We need the ability to go on the offense. Let's pray. God, I pray for your help to preach tonight. I pray for power to lift you up and exalt your word. I pray that you'd increase our confidence in the word of God. Give us a hunger to study it so that we might be more bold to take a stand for it. Thank you for our church, the great weeks we've had, the great musical, the great Sunday. I pray tonight that you'd give us just a touch of revival. I pray for liberty tonight to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Bear Bryant was a coach in the early 1930s. He coached at the University of Alabama, and he's probably the winningest football coach of all time. He's well known. But Bear Bryant's the one who coined that statement, and here's what he said. Offense sells tickets, but defense wins championships. Now, I grew up under that kind of mentality. My grandpa was a coach. My dad was a coach. My mom thought she was a coach. But anyway, we always grew up under that. And uh, I remember going to practices where we didn't even pick up a ball. You talk about miserable. The whole thing was defensive drills. And you learn how to get in a three-point stance and slide your feet and watch the waist of the man on offense. I mean, defense is where it was at. And I'm not trying to uh, overthrow tradition or anything, but if you stop and actually think about it, that statement sounds good, and we've accepted it as gospel to some extent. But victory does not come simply because you have a good defense and keep the opposing team from scoring. At some point, you have to go on the offense and score some points as well. Last time I checked, the team with the most points on the scoreboard is the one that wins the game. 
What I'm saying tonight is this victory does not come without offense. Defense can stay the enemy, but defense alone does not bring the win. You have to pair a strong defense with an effective offense. The same thing is true in war. In war, you have to have defense, but you also need offense. You need fortification to withstand the attack, but you also need the ability to take the fight to your enemy. I'm glad that in 1775, we did not just have defense. I'm glad that in 1775, Paul Revere got on his horse and warned the colonists the British were coming. And I'm glad when they heard that midnight cry, they didn't hide out in their home or run for the hills and just hunker down hoping for the best. But I'm glad there were some patriots, some Minutemen they were called, that stood their ground at Lexington and Concord. And though they died that day, they fired their weapon and took the fight to the enemy. They went on the offense. I'm glad after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, we had some offense. The very next day, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave that speech, a day of infamy, and Congress voted almost unanimously. One, I suppose, liberal man didn't vote for it, but they voted unanimously to declare war on Japan, and I'm glad that we took the fight to the enemy, and we kept them from coming back to America. Amen, and we had some offense. I'm glad the same is true on 9-11. I'm glad though some cowardly terrorists came in and sucker punched us without any kind of warning. I'm glad that we didn't just hold out and hope for the best, but I'm glad we took the fight to the enemy. I like that statement, that video we show where George W. Bush is there at the wreckage and a man says, we can't hear you. And he said, I can hear you. And the world can hear you. And soon, those who knock down these towers are going to hear all of us. And I'm glad that we put planes in the air and tanks on the ground and boots in the field and soldiers in the front yard of our enemies. And we didn't just play defense. I'm glad that we had a good offense. Thank God for defense. But I tell you this, we have to win a war with offense. There's no team, there's no soldier, there's no Christian that can afford to only play defense. We have to have an offense as well. And here's what I mean. On their own, girded loins do not threaten the enemy. On their own, the breastplate does not threaten the enemy. On its own, having your feet shod does not threaten the enemy. The shield by itself does not threaten the enemy. The helmet alone does not threaten the enemy. All of those things are for the welfare and defense of the soldier. But none of those things threaten the well-being of the enemy. You don't win a war just because you girt your loins. You don't win a war just because you put on a breastplate. You don't win a war just because you have a pair of shoes on your feet. You don't win a war just because you're holding a shield. You don't topple a principle because you put a helmet on your head. And I'm not discounting that. All of those things are vitally important, but all of those things are for defense. They don't gain any ground. They do not threaten. They do not kill. They preserve and protect the soldier, but do not threaten the enemy. Now, I said it a minute ago, wars are won not just with defense, but also an effective offense. The Roman soldiers of Paul's day would not stand long in battle if all they had was defensive armor. So it was imperative that they paired their defensive armor with offensive weaponry. Every soldier would be adorned with a sword. Now you study the text and the sword, we're not talking about the long, broad sword of several feet, but we're talking about a dagger-like sword, maybe 18 inches in length. And this sword is a precision, precision killing instrument. It is made to make striking, strict, I mean, 
on point cuts to the enemy. Wherever the vulnerable place is, you can pull out that sword and you can strike a fatal blow. It's more than resisting the enemy. It is more than restraining the enemy. It is more than just repelling the enemy. You and I must have the ability to deliver a knockout blow to our enemy. So as we've weaved our way down through the armor, I said a minute ago, we've made a transition now. The first several pieces of the armor have dealt with defense or putting on armor to protect us from attack. But now we come to offensive weaponry where we can take the fight to our enemy. I love the Apostle Paul for many reasons. But one thing I like about Paul is he's no pacifist. You've heard the old illustration, the Quakers are pacifists, and the Quaker was about to lose his temper and shoot a man, and he said, Sir, I meanest thou no harm, but you're standing where I'm about to shoot. Uh, I'm glad Paul wasn't a pacifist. He wasn't walking around sticking flowers in the gun barrel of the devil. <laughs> He's not sitting around a campfire strumming a 12-string, singing some hippie love song, hoping we can all get along. He's not looking to pass out an olive branch and compromise and reach an agreement and assimilate with wickedness that's around him. He had enough respect to respect his adversary, but he had enough faith in God not to live in fear of his adversary. And I like Paul. It's like he's saying, fellas, we've been practicing defense now for five pieces of armor. It's been a lot of defense. We practiced all day Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday on defense, but I think it's time to install some offense. It's about time that we don't sit back and say, let's withstand, but now let's take the fight to our enemy. And in verse 17, after he stresses the importance of being covered in defensive armor, he says, now it's time to go on the offense. I like offense. I don't know about you. I never was much for defense. I know they they say defense wins championships, but offense gets this. I like that better. And I like to shoot. I didn't like to guard anybody, and that's probably why I didn't make it very far in basketball. But here it is. Now we get to go on the offense. Bobby Knight, the great theologian. Bobby Knight was asked, what's the best thing you can do in a close game? I like what he said. Drive to the basket and put the pressure on the defense. Now, tonight, you do not engage in war looking to come out with a tie. Any sport that can end in a tie isn't a sport. Is the World Cup over yet or not? You go into war looking for victory. And here is our offensive weaponry. Look at verse 17 again, the second half of the verse. He said, and take, but here it is, the sword of the Spirit... What is the sword of the Spirit? Here it is, the Word of God. Now consider Paul. It was Paul who was led by the Holy Spirit to say we are more than conquerors. It was Paul who was led by the Holy Spirit to say we have victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was Paul that was led by the Spirit to declare the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So Paul is saying, I'm not just looking to make it through the battle. I'm not just looking to save my own life in this thing. I'm not looking just to make it through the conflict. I'm looking to come out of this conflict with the victory. He said, I'm looking to drive the ball and put the pressure on the devil. I'm not just going to stand back and try to dodge his darts. I'm going to take the fight to the front door of hell if I have to. And here's how you do it. He's saying, if you want to withstand, then take the first five pieces of armor and withstand. But if you want to add some winning to your withstanding, then 
then go get your sword and swing it at the devil. I feel like if Paul was Donald Trump, he'd say, if you pick up the sword, you're going to win so much you'll be tired of winning. And that's sort of what he's saying. Think about it right here. David did not walk in the valley of Elon looking to withstand he walked into that valley looking to come out with Goliath's head in his hand. He wanted victory. Joshua didn't cross over into Canaan land looking to hunker down in a little corner, put a single wide up on cinder blocks, live off the grid on a half acre, and just hope nobody messed with him. Joshua crossed over into Jordan looking to conquer every bit of that land and kill every Hivite, uh, Canaanite, parasite and whatever else. He just wanted to kill them all in that he wanted victory. Christ did not walk up Calvary's hill looking to just reach a truce with the devil. He walked up the hill of Calvary, got nailed to a cross, shed his blood for our sin to come out of that thing with victory and thank God that he did. And so it is for you and I tonight. We are not just equipped to have defense. We have been enabled to have an offense. In fact, it's our DNA to go on offense. We're supposed to have life and that more abundantly. We are not some pacifist crowd, some weak, cowering crowd, some crowd walking around, biting our fingernails, scared of our own shadow. We've got a mighty weapon tonight to meet the devil foe to foe, face to face, fist to fist, on the field of conflict and come out with the victory. We have an aggressive adversary, but I'm glad we have an aggressive offense. So how do we gain ground? How do we advance it's interesting, isn't it? Paul lists the sword of the Spirit after all of these other pieces of armor. And I think the reason for that is all of these other pieces of armor represent these different graces that God extends to us. But if we do not properly have these in their place, we'll not properly utilize the sword of the Spirit. What I mean is without having truth where it belongs, you'll not depend much on your Bible. Without having righteousness where it belongs, you'll not depend much on your Bible. Without having faith in the right place, you'll not really rely on your Bible. Without the assurance of your salvation, you'll not have much confidence in your Bible. You'll lose the cutting edge, if you will. So we have to have all of those to have faith in our sword. Now let's consider our sword for a while. Our sword was not hammered out on some blacksmith's anvil by his man-made hammer from a piece of steel derived from the earth. Our sword is not a Damascus blade, a serrated blade, or a razor blade. Our sword is not a straight edge, a scalloped edge. It's not a bowie knife, a pocket knife, or any kind of other knife. Our sword tonight is the very Word of God. It is a spiritual sword fashioned and forged by inspiration, tempered perfectly to pierce through the darkness of spiritual wickedness. It is not by any other means that you and I can achieve victory. Victory only comes by and through the Word of God. So tonight... What is the Word of God? It is Genesis to Revelation. It is Old Testament to New Testament. It is the complete canon of Scripture and every single word contained in the Scripture. It is line upon line. It is precept upon precept. It is every jot and every single tittle. Picture the Christian soldier. He has truth that holds him together. He has righteousness wrapped around his heart. He has studs on his shoes so he can take a stand. He has faith that covers him from the fiery dart. His mind is settled on the fact he's heaven bound with the hammer down. But there 
there it is in his hand, shimmering in the sun as he steps on the battlefield. He stands before the devil and he unsheathes his sword. That sole piece of offensive weaponry sets the Christian soldier apart from any other soldier ever to walk the face of this earth. His weapon is infallible, indestructible, incorruptible, and impeccable. It's eternal. It's alive and it's powerful. It says in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It can be disputed but not destroyed. It can be doubted but not destroyed. It can be denied but not destroyed. It can be distorted but never destroyed. You take what you will and match it up against the Bible and the Bible makes it crumble. Jeremiah 23, 29 is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. The word of God is authoritative. The word of God is unbreakable. The word of God is virtuous. The word of God is maturing. The word of God is conforming. The word of God is comforting. The word of God is convicting. The word of God is condemning. The word of God is encouraging. And the word of God is enlightening. Thank God for our sword. You say, what is the Bible? It is two testaments. What is the Bible? 66 books. What is the Bible? 783,137 words. 31,102 verses. 1,189 chapters given to man from God. The Bible is God's complete word and the Christian's complete library. 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. In the Old Testament, there are five books of law, 12 books of history, five books of poetry, five major prophets, and 12 minor prophets. Then you turn over into grace to the New Testament and you find four books of gospel, one book of history, 14 Pauline epistles, seven general epistles, and a book of prophecy. Tonight your sword is more efficient than Moses' rod. It's more effective than David's sling. It's more imposing than Samson's strength. There's nothing like the sword of the Spirit. God breathed and God preserved the Word of God. Hebrews 11 in verse 3 through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. It's a living sword. It's a life-giving sword. It's a life-giving sword. It's sure. It's strong and it is sharp. I'm glad tonight it's not a rabbit's foot. It's not a Ouija board. It's not a magic eight ball. It's not a lottery ticket. It's no four-leaf clover. This is the very Word of God. It is tried. It's tested and found perfectly pure and per purely perfect. Psalm 12 and verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. John Wesley said, I'm a man of one book. I'm afraid Christians think too highly of being too widely read. And we have our bookshelves filled with faux swords. They look like a sword and we act like it's a sword, but it's no sword. We spend too much time on a reading stack instead of reading the scripture. The word of God is your sword. We go into battle with confidence because there's no book like the Word of God. Amen. Job 23 and verse 12, Job said, I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary 
food. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Think about it. The same Spirit of God that moved on the face of the deep and gave form to creation is the same Spirit of God that moved on man to give us the Word of God. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's holy. It's heavenly. It's harmonizing. It's Spirit-filled. It's sacred. It's saving. It's enduring. It's everlasting. And it's eternal. There's no book like the Bible. That's our sword tonight. It's divine in its origin. It's divine in its operation and divine in its outcome. It'll transform, transcend, and it's always true. It's forever settled. It's searching. It's cleansing. And it's convicting. I hope you don't mind if I tell you a little bit about the sword tonight. Let me tell you a little bit about the book. It's more desirable than honey. It's more valuable than gold. It's more nourishing than manna. It's more satisfying than water. It's more healing than a balm. It's more strengthening than milk. It's more substantial than meat. It's more fruitful than a seed. The Bible is God's mind. The Bible is Christ's heart. The Bible is the Spirit's zeal. It's doctrinal. It's principled. And it is immutable. The Bible's a book that is safe. The Bible's a book that will save. The Bible's a book of wisdom. And the Bible's a manual on worship. I think about the Bible. It's my map. It's my staff. It's my compass. Thank God it's my guide. But most of all tonight, it is our sword. The Word of God is as fixed as the sovereignty of God. It's as holy as God's majesty and effective as God's potency. By the Word of God, the world was framed. By the Word of God, faith was birthed in my soul. And by the Word of God, the devil will flee. Tonight, the Bible's not just a jewel. It's the entire mind of precious stone. The Bible Bible's not just a glass of water. It's the entire sea filled with the water. The Bible's not just a star in the galaxy. It's the universe that the star dwells in. It's all of God, all about God, and giving it to man. Thank God for the Bible. The Bible is scientifically accurate, prophetically perfect, and medically efficient. The Bible's historically inerrant, textually congruent, astrologically correct, and geographically exact. You'll find no flaw you'll find no fault and find no error in the word of God from the smallest grain of dust thank God on the sand uh, on the seashore from the smallest grain of dust in the desert to the smallest grain of stardust there in the space in space God got it right every single time there's no error in the scripture we have a sword tonight to combat the devil the word of God the Word of God towers high and stretches wide. It comes low and runs deep. The Word of God is the catalyst of rege regeneration. It's the catalyst of re restoration and the catalyst of revival. Thank God for the Bible. The grass withereth and the flower thereof fadeth away, but the Word of the Lord endureth forever. Abraham heard it. Moses received it. David sang it. Elijah declared it. Ezekiel ate it. Stephen died for it. Paul preached it. Peter was crucified because of it, and the Bereans loved it. It's been censored, but it cannot be conquered. It's 
It's been banned but cannot be banished. It's been scrutinized but cannot be snuffed out. Every would-be stealer of our spiritual sword has withered like the grass and faded like the leaf. The Bible stands tonight as they bow their knee and burn in hell. The Bible's still here. You will not dull its edge. You will not break its blade. You will not blunt its point. You won't burn it out or lock it out. The Bible stands. I know the old football coach made a good statement. Defense wins championships. And I'm not trying to disrespect my elders, but I got to beg to differ. In Christian warfare, it takes more than withstanding. You're going to have to have a sword to take the fight to your enemy. I read an article in some liberal Southern Baptist. I guess that's like an oxymoron. Some liberal Southern Baptist magazine today online. Baptist News Global is the name of it if you want to block any kind of websites on your computer. But anyway, Baptist News Global. The author who is a pastor said, Jesus, not the Bible, is the Word of God. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I think Jesus said that about the Word of God. There's an incarnate word, an inspired word. There is a living word, a literary word. There's the express word, Jesus, the express image of God. Amen. Thank God for that. And then there is the word canonized for us in the scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 25, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Psalm 138, 2, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. That fellow needs to sue his brain for non-support and give up his pastorate and get a job at a gas station or something. That's, that's probably demeaning to gas station employees. But anyway, I mean, can you imagine him saying, I tell you what you need. What you need in despair, you don't need a doctor. You need a verse. Amen? What you need in the questions of life, you need a verse. What you need in the hard times is you need a verse. What you need under satanic attack is you need a verse. Holy Bible, book divine. Thank God, precious treasure. Thou art mine. Aren't you tired of taking hits all the time? Aren't you tired of ducking and dodging? Aren't you tired of just playing defense? Wouldn't it be good to unsheathe the sword every once in a while? Wag your fist at the devil and then come back with his head in your hand. Can I tell you, he's a defeated foe and we've got a sword tonight to combat the enemy. Thank God for the Bible. Defense can win championships but offense wins the war. I thought about this. The devil's just a character in the book. Our God's the one who wrote it. Revelation 19 tells us when Jesus comes back, how's he going to smite his enemy? Out of his mouth will go a sharp sword. Revelation 1.16, he holds in one hand the local churches, and then he defends them with a two-edged sword. You talk about a message, how do you defend yourself in Christian warfare? Even the Lord uses the word, Amen. The sword, God's word informs and transforms. It's universal yet individual. It's promise and fulfillment. It reaches far and draws close. It's accurately preserved. It's simple yet profound. It's once delivered and still yet relevant. If you'll believe it, it'll save you. If you'll read it, you'll be wise. And if you obey it, then you can be blessed. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable, and I'm going to apply this in a minute, just bear with me. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I won't worry the devil with philosophy. I won't make one hole in darkness with logic. I won't send even the smallest demon running back to hell with my political talking point. 
that is guaranteed to go forth and come back void and vain. But in the moment of spiritual warfare, if I'll make a conscious decision to unsheath my spiritual sword, I've got a promise based on the Bible that the Word of God will not return void. Isaiah 55, 11, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus gave us an example on how to handle yourself in spiritual warfare. Jesus himself was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. By the way, sometimes the will of God might take you to a place of testing. He was taken out in the wilderness and the devil began to tempt him. You know how the word of God, which there's... Why didn't that guy put this in his article? He didn't even put Matthew 4 in his article. But anyway, about Jesus is... Anyway, why... When Jesus was led into the wilderness and the devil began to tempt him, you know how he responded? It is... He didn't say, well, Grandma said... Now, I was watching... uh, What's that show? The View or whatever. I was watching... Here's what they said. Here's how I feel about it. No. He said, here is what the Bible says. When Moses stood before Pharaoh, a Pharaoh, a type of Satan, you know what he said? He did not tell Pharaoh what he felt. He didn't tell Pharaoh what he think. He just said, I don't know what to tell you except what the I am told me back there on the mountain. So I'm just going to tell you exactly what the I am had to say. When you and I come in conflict with the devil, we fight the same way. I fear in our day there are too many offensive attempts made by Christians and churches without utilizing the only offensive hope that we have, which is the Word of God. Colossians 3.16 tells me, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. John 5.39, Jesus said, search the Scriptures. We don't go on the attack with our girdle. We don't go on the attack with our breastplate or helmet. We don't attack somebody with our shoes. Who was that, George W. Bush? Somebody threw a shoe at him. But we don't do that. We don't go on the attack with our shoe. We go on attack with our sword. It's a tragedy, and I believe it causes a lot of spiritual casualties because people say they believe the Bible, but they do not truly know their Bible. Therefore, they cannot use their Bible. Clichés and opinions and even good advice won't win the war. You can shout loud, but the volume of your shout does not scare the devil. You can be deep in what you say, but the depth of your statement does not devil or bother the devil. You can be fervent in your delivery of what you say. But your fervency does not scare the devil. It is the word of God alone that will win. Amen. We have to have a sword. Now, it takes a level of maturity and the ability to understand and apply the word of God to be successful in spiritual combat. Think about this. It takes training to be a soldier. Some of you have been in the military. There's no way a man shows up or a woman, be but there's no way somebody shows up first day, I'm enlisting, give me my gun, and then fly me over there and drop me. They're not going to do that. I remember when I first started to hunt, I think I was like six years old or something, you know, but anyway, it just when I was sitting here on the end, I felt like I was in a tree stand. It was killing me the whole time. I just wanted to shoot Alex right there on the, anyway, for more reasons than one, Alex, but a lot of meat on those bones too, but anyhow... I'm kidding. He's Canadian bacon, right? <laughs> you like that? Oh, my. And I won't ma- mention Moach over there. That's Pepperidge Farms all the way right there. Right? <laughs> Christmas time. Move on. He's move on, move on. 
I remember, though, the first time I went hunting, my grandpa taught it. We had hunter safety in school where I'm from. We should have that in our school. I don't know if they'll ever use it, but they need to know how to operate a gun without hurting themselves or somebody else. If you know how to use it, you probably won't hurt yourself with it. Anyway, we had eighth grade, hunter safety. We got to bring our guns to school and everything. Seriously. I remember my grandpa took me hunting, hunting the first time, and here's his advice to me, seriously, as we were going out. He goes, don't shoot me. That was his advice. <laughs> Pretty good advice. I didn't shoot him. I preached in Georgia back in July, and they gave Lincoln, not, not me, they gave Lincoln a Kershaw pocket knife. I'm talking like a four-inch blade on that pocket knife. That thing's sharp. I'm talking, it's very sharp. He was allowed to wear it on his pants because it has a clip on it. The tour group girls were there, and so I, he wanted to show off. You know? So I let him wear it on his pants. As soon as we got home, it got take, confiscated. You know? So he can't have it anymore because it's sharp. You know why? Because he is not ready to handle that thing yet. Navy SEAL sniper training is intense. I looked it up online. Navy SEAL sniper is a three-month course, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. All they're doing is studying their weapon. Why? Because they want them to be effective when they utilize it in the field. First Peter tells me two Chapter 2, verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When Christ was tempted in specific areas, here's how he met the devil. He, he met specific temptation with specific scripture. Here's how I want you to think about your Bible. I don't want you to think about your Bible as the sword. No, listen to me. I want you to think about your Bible as the armory full of swords. Last time I checked, you swinging a blunt-edged leather Bible at the devil is not going to hurt him too bad. You take this physical book and just say, well, I got a sword there on my coffee table. I got a sword on my dashboard. I got a sword in my hand. You study out the verse. It is not the word logos. It's rhema. It's different. It's not talking about simply the recorded word, but the spoken, or we could say quoted, statements of Scripture. In spiritual warfare, you need more than to be a King James Bible believer. You've got to be a Bible reader. Because you're going to need to be able to quote Scripture. You hide your, the word in your heart, Right? This is more than a fashion accessory that pulls, pulls together a nice sport coat and a pair of pants. Amen. This is our weaponry. And we need to know a Bible verse for every moment in life. It's the word declared. I don't just go up to the devil swinging my Bible at him. But I can hit him with individual verses of scripture. Let me give you a few things and I'll close. Number one, just two points. If you're going to use your sword, number one, you have to be settled on the fact it is your sword. If you don't have complete confidence in your Bible, then you're not going to utilize it. Last time I checked, you'll be a lot better off as a Christian if you quit critiquing and criticizing and scrutinizing and looking for flaws in everything. Amen. And you just sit on your heart that maybe God's smarter than you are and God can do what you can't do. And you have a perfect Bible. If you don't have a perfect Bible, then we should not meet ever again. 
If there's one error in our Bible, then we shouldn't have church, right? Because how do I know what's right and what's wrong? You can't tell me John 3, 16 is accurate and then tell me another verse isn't. How do I know that you're right and I'm wrong? It's either all God's Word or none of it's God's Word. You better be settled on that. Amen. Just because you read a blog or got some lexicon or something like that. Hey, listen to me. Is this God's Word or not? You better have some confidence in the Bible. Be settled on it. But number two, here's the important thing. Be a student of it. What's the quote? I forget the man who made it. He said, God has condescended to become an author. And how sad it is few men will ever read the book he wrote. What if they took your physical Bible from you? Because that could happen. And all the Bible you had was the Bible you had in your heart. The Bible you had committed to memory. When's the last time you read your Bible and got anything out of it? I preached in the Bible college one time on, are you right with your Bible? Because everybody says, are you right with God? Are you right with God? And we'll say, yeah, I'm right with God. Because we make that mean whatever we want it to. Well, I'm not as bad as Foley boys are. I'm right with God. You know, it makes me feel pretty spiritual. But here's the thing. If you're not right with your Bible, you're not even close to being right with God. Spend time in the Bible. I remember reading an illustration, I'll close, of a lady who was in a, you probably heard it before, but was in a house fire. And she escaped the fire, and they asked her how she made it out. And she said, I tried to escape. She said, but I couldn't reach the window. It was too high. I pulled over a chair. I stood on the chair, and I couldn't reach the window. She said, but we had these big family Bibles. You remember those? We still, you have a family Bible? I used to carry one of those things around when I first started preaching. I probably weighed 30 pounds, you know. But anyway, super spiritual. Had a picture of Jesus with long hair on it and everything. But anyway, I, she, she had a big family Bible. Took my family Bible, she said, and I set it on that chair, and then I stood on the Bible, and I was able to reach the window and get out of the fire. She said, I escaped the fire because I stood on the Word. That's a silly illustration. But I tell you this, that's how you're going to get out of trouble. Amen. In spiritual warfare, you're going to have to stand on the... My heart is leaning on the Word, the written Word of God. Amen. Thank God, the B-I-B-L-E, that ought to be the book for all of us tonight. That's our sword. 2023 is coming. I wonder how your walk in the Word of God has been this past year. If we're going to make it in spiritual warfare, we have to know how to use our sword. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.